You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 478, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Andrew Culver is a longtime Rails developer and creator of Bullet Train, a SaaS framework for Rails and the organizer of the Rails SaaS conference in Los Angeles, California, and Athens, Greece. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Andrew. Hey, Brittany. Thanks for having me. This is a long time coming, and I am really excited to ask you your developer origin story because I have no idea what it is. So please tell me your tale. Okay, this is amazing that you've never heard this because probably this isn't known from your intro to the people that are listening, but like we're really good friends. So we've talked about a lot of stuff. I feel like we unpack a lot and I'm not sure if I know yours either. Okay, so I'll share mine and then you can tell me yours some other time. Have you covered it on the podcast before? I have, but we'll get a drink sometime and I will share it with you. I promise. Awesome. Or you can send me the URL and I'll listen to it as well. Okay. So for me, it is a story of, I think, other people. I don't know when I first saw my first computer. I think I was about six years old in Hamilton, Ontario. We had a neighbor and we were over at their house. And I think it was the first time I saw a computer. I believe it was like a TRS-80 or something like that. And it was hooked up to a television in one of the kids' rooms. And I was just absolutely amazed because I thought television was cool. Like it was cool that there's this media or whatever that I was watching. But I think the thing that was so magical about a computer, more so than video games or like a Nintendo, was the fact that you could 100% control what was on the screen. That to me was really cool, that it was interactive, that it was two-way And that really could do anything. Suspect was the concept that was so attractive about computers. And so from that point forward, anytime I had access to a computer at school, I loved that stuff. So that kind of evolved into me using computers for all kinds of things and like trying to hack batch files on the Novell network at school. And I really was into that idea as well. So like when I saw the movie, hackers for all of its terrible portrayals of all kinds of things really is kind of like a cult film in that way. And they do tend to be a little bit cringy, if not a lot of it. But there was something about all of that that was just totally enticing to me. And so I leaned really hard into it, spent a ton of time with computers when I was a kid at school. And then eventually my brother bought one and like I lived on that thing. The internet was a big part of that as well. So like when I started, the internet wasn't really a thing. There were BBSs and stuff like that. And I love that as well. So my sort of coming of age was in the time when the internet was getting broad adoption. And so that was its whole own thing that was incredible. And I think the thing about that that was so amazing was just that the infinite distribution, the idea that you could create something and put it out there and transmission was effectively free and whatever you shared, you could share with everybody in the world. These are things that we take for granted now. But when I was growing up, this was like new stuff. The one thing I think that is the core piece of my personal developer origin story, like how did an interest in computers become an interest in development? It was always other people that were smarter than me and more talented that I had proximity to. And I was just extremely privileged in that way. So with HTML, I remember 
hacking HTML files that came on like a CompuServe CD or something like that. And that was how I learned HTML. And I would have been happy as a clam for decades doing table layouts in my browser. And I had a friend, his name was Dave. So he was like a super bright guy, but he was also kind of tapped into what was technically correct. And that was never me. I was like, lie, cheat, and steal to get something done. (laughs) But my friend Dave was like, dude, table layouts are lame. They're not maintainable. Have you not played around with CSS yet? (laughs) And so he was like really early on the CSS train when that was becoming a thing. Like it didn't exist, I think, when I started. So that was Dave. And then there was a girl that I went to school with named Allison who was way like way super evolved in terms of, I think, what anybody typically would be doing in high school. She was a contributor to the Linux kernel, a contributor to FreeBSD, went on to become a prominent member of the GNOME GTK community. And I remember all I wanted to do was hack video games. And she would sit down. That was how I learned C. So I wanted to like, build these tools that would help translate video games or whatever, like file input output. And I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. And Allison just loved teaching people how to do stuff. And so she spent a ton of time. She was older than me, but spent a ton of time really teaching me these core skills. And again, like I was just really, really fortunate to always be surrounded by one person that was willing to take time to teach me the right way to do things. And At a certain point, like I became self-sustaining as a developer, but I've always carried with me a sense of like, yeah, you got to pay it forward. You really didn't do this on your own and you owe a lot of people. That's just the tip of the iceberg. But there's a lot of people that I owe big thanks for helping me become the developer that I became. I love that so much. So what brought you to Ruby and Rails, Andrew? Oh, another person that was smarter than me, Brian Smith. And I worked together at a publishing company and I was PHP developer at that point. And at this point, it was like 2009, 2010. So Rails was already really well established, but we were solving all these problems in PHP. I loved it because it was like, oh, we have to implement libraries for these design patterns, things like Active Record and all of this stuff, other ORMs like Data Mapper or whatever. And I really loved doing that work, but at a certain point it got old and my friend Brian said, yeah, why are we even doing this? In Rails, all these problems are solved. So Brian basically said, look, I have started building apps on Ruby on Rails. I'm so much more effective. I'm building products so much quicker and I'm shipping it to Heroku. So Heroku was, I think, a new hotness at that time. And like, I don't even have to deal with the ops people. I don't need permission from anybody. I'm shipping product and it's absolutely incredible. And I was so jealous of that. Brian invited me out to the local Rails user group. I met other people like Ken Collins, who I really feel is like one of my Rails dads or whatever you call him, like your Rails parent person who taught you it. Basically, from that point forward, the rest is history. Amazing. I would pay good money to get a picture of you during the hacker phase. And so I will harass you about that later. It's really bad. And I will send you that photo and we can put it in the show notes. Love that. Okay. So 
Listeners know this. I could literally spend a week talking about how much I adore Bullet Train, but I'm going to limit myself to one question today, Andrew, around Bullet Train, because I do want to get into the Rails SaaS conference. So we've seen a couple people come forward and they're like, hey, I'm coming forward with a Rails starter kit. And so I guess what I'm asking you is, what is your advice for people who think that they could possibly build a business on a starter kit coming out of the Ruby and Rails ecosystem? based on your experience with Bullet Train? I got asked this a lot in the early days of Bullet Train. Bullet Train was early. It wasn't certainly wasn't the first. There was like Rails kits, I think, was the thing that some people were using before. Bullet Train was a thing in the Rails ecosystem. And there was definitely prior art for this concept of starter kits. But Bullet Train kind of took on a life of its own. Like it made an impact in this corner of our market. So I used to hear in the early days from other people that were sort of inspired by Bullet Train. They saw that this was a thing in Ruby on Rails. I myself was inspired by Laravel Spark that existed in the PHP Laravel ecosystem. And people would reach out and be like, what do you think? Should I do this? Do you have any suggestions? And I think different times I responded to that differently. So there were times where I was like, hey, what you're doing is just fully competitive. And so like, I don't really want to spend my time telling you the ins and outs of my business because like some of this stuff has been hard learned and hard earned. I think I came to the conclusion that I was never going to do starter kits in every ecosystem. And so these things weren't necessarily competitive. Yes, some people were coming back to Rails from other ecosystems in order to use Bullet Train. And we definitely attracted some people who were not previously Rails people, but they loved what Bullet Train was so specifically that they chose to use it to build something. So that was a plus. But I think at a certain point, I realized, no, this is like concept that people are going to do in different ecosystems. And I end up making friends with a bunch of the people that do these types of starter kits in different ecosystems and think after five plus years now of working on Bullet Train, I don't think there's any discouraging some people from working on abstract tools or tooling or some people are just really drawn to it. And I think you can learn a ton from doing it. So I wouldn't discourage anybody. But I think for myself personally, it was a bit of a detour from the thing that I actually meant to do. And this became more clear to me over the longer arc of the bullet train business, the outcome, the thing that really inspired me to build bullet train in the first place, it was twofold. One, I bootstrapped using consulting as a source of funding. And so I was doing a lot of consulting projects. And so naturally you can sort of understand how you would be like, oh, I want to start our template. I want to do something that helps me do projects faster. But the second thing was I really, after selling Churnbuster, I really thought there was a viable strategy in building many things quickly and placing many bets and seeing which one kind of grew into a real business. And what I found in practice was that building and maintaining starter kit, at least one that lived up to my vision of everything that a software framework could do, ended up being such a consuming task and combined with the consulting that ended up really funding that business, which was very natural because now you have a starter kit and people want you to build with it. The time that all of that took 
really actually starved me from having the time to do the thing that I initially set out to do, which was build SaaS products myself. I built a lot of SaaS products, but they weren't mine. They were products that I built in a consulting capacity. And over five plus years, you start to see other people using your tooling to build these businesses that really went the distance, provided incredible outcomes that actually outweigh in some ways the outcome that I myself experienced with Bullet Train. And you're like, wait a minute, but that was the thing that I meant to do. But now I'm here maintaining this thing in perpetuity and not overstate how expensive and time consuming and all of that Bullet Train is as a product to maintain. And thankfully, it justifies itself. But it is a very, very strong consulting business. But it wasn't the business that I set out to build initially. And I think that's something that has taken me a little while to fully realize or get clarity on. But that's not advice. It's not telling people what they should or should not do. It's just a thing to think about that was a lesson that was like hard-earned and a battle that was long fought. As an engineering manager or an engineer, too much of your time gets sucked up with downtime issues, troubleshooting, and error tracking. How can you spend more time shipping code and less time putting out fires? This is a question I'm always asking myself. Well, Honey Badger is how. It's a suite of monitoring tools made specifically for developers. It's the only system that combines error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron and heartbeat monitoring into one clean, fast interface. Sure, you can get familiar with any interface, but why waste your time learning some Franken-style interface that looks like an airline cockpit when what you need is clarity and speed? You won't know if Honey Badger will really save you time and trouble until you can see how it works in your own tool chain. With two lines of code and five minutes, you can see for yourself. Honey Badger automatically hooks into popular web frameworks like Ruby on Rails, job systems, authentication libraries, and front-end JavaScript. Imagine fixing errors before your users can even report them. Five minutes of your time with a free trial is all it takes to see if it will work for you. It just might be the best five minutes you've spent in a long while. Check out honeybadger.io. I really appreciate you sharing that advice because we want people going out there and creating open source projects and sharing it with everybody. It takes a little bit of an ego. I think you would agree, Andrew, to say like, I have created the ultimate starter kit. Like this is the way you should be building apps. And to be able to stand by that and continuously maintain it and like take other people's opinions. I'm sure over the years, you've had many people that have come to you and said, this is like 95% of what I need. But if you could just like change this one thing and you've had to make hard decisions around doing that, it's really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in that way, as you provide more and more features or not just more and more features, but also there's a lot of opinion that's baked into Bullet Train for better or for worse. And some of the other starter kits are a little different on this. So for example, I would say we're a pretty evolved framework with a lot of patterns and a lot of opinions and things like that. And all of that comes together to provide a very elevated experience and a very smooth, like it's a very complete base on which to build apps, including like the outgoing webhook stuff, our add-ons like action models, but also just like the crazy amount of stuff that we do around APIs and serialization and all the stuff out of the box. And like, would be hard for anybody that hasn't played with it to really appreciate how complete and to the extremes we've pushed some of these things. But I think there's also some merit to 
solutions that are like less opinionated and a little more vanilla rails and a little less batteries included. I don't say that in a critical way. It just means like maybe a checkbox for checkbox. There's some things that we do to a higher degree or to a more extreme, but that also comes at the cost of people needing to adopt our conventions. And so if you look at some of the other starter kits, I think it's been good because it's provided people with an alternative where if we're too much, they can go find less. Again, I can't overstate how much I'm not saying that as a criticism. It's like a better fit for some people, even if it's a less opinionated solution. That in and of itself can be definitely a benefit. I agree. So before we leave this topic, I want to give a shout out to Indy Rails for episode 11. Michael Buckby was just on the show. It's a great episode. Highly recommend listening. But he actually talked about your Turnbuster story, Andrew, which I thought was a really cool tie in there. Oh, that's awesome. So great. I don't have to cover that. Anybody that wants to hear about the experience there can go and check out that episode. I love Buckby. I cannot overstate how incredible a person Mike is. He doesn't talk about this publicly. I've known Mike for over 10 years. We were in the same area in Norfolk, Virginia. He's so successful. He would never say that. He would argue with me if I say that out loud. He's so successful in business, and yet he finds so much time to help other people in person, at conferences, in online communities. So highly recommend that episode. Awesome. Well, the original purpose for me bringing you on the show today, Andrew, was I am feeling extreme FOMO over the fact that I didn't get to go to the Athens, Greece version of RailSAS conference. I want to hear everything. What were your key takeaways? What went well? What would you change? Just give it to me, Andrew. I'm listening. Brittany, we missed you so much. So if it wasn't covered, I think you did talk about this in an earlier episode. You really helped with the organization of RailSAS in Los Angeles. You showed up. You do the thing that you're so incredible at interviewing, did interviews with our attendees, with our speakers, sponsors, all of that. And I mean, the goal really was to have you do the same thing in Athens, but obviously you weren't able to make it. And that's a loss for everybody. (laughs) Wish you were there. Wish we had the opportunity to hang out. But yeah, definitely happy to unpack it. So the background here is way back in the early days of me even thinking about doing RailSAS as a conference. I took a trip with my son to Greece. I had been invited to attend a friend's entrepreneurial mastermind. It was this like thing with like 10 people. And it was structured based on a mastermind that myself and a friend, Paul McMahon and Keith Perhack had run in Japan a couple of times. One of the attendees that had attended our mastermind in Tokyo had reached out and said, look, I want to do the same thing for European entrepreneurs and I'm going to do it in Athens. Would you like to come? Because you're familiar with the structure of it, you could kind of help directed and kind of try to get the same result in this new thing. And so I think normally I probably would not have been able to make it, but my kid had been studying ancient Greek as a language, as a hobby. So he had been doing it for a few years and all of a sudden somebody asked me, do you want to go to Athens? And I think I normally would have said no, but because he had been doing this, it was like this opportunity to like mix business and pleasure. So I said, yes, I'll come. We'll go to Athens. I'll take my kid. We'll do some touring. So we had the opportunity to tour around Athens. We didn't do any islands, but we went out to Corinth, which is kind of rural out there, but there's like a really interesting 
archaeological dig that's happened there. And like the whole place is incredible. While we were there, I love rooftops, restaurants, bars, whatever. That's my native place. That's where I feel at home. And you experienced that in Los Angeles. So Mm -hmm. the venue that we had that rooftop with the pool and the bar and everything, right? Oh, yeah. It was gorgeous. I love how you added in that rooftop experience. I mean, just even having breakfast before the conference in LA was just like, I mean, you could see the Hollywood sign. Could tell that you really thought holistically about the location, Andrew. It was really wonderful. Yeah. So I was kind of hanging out in Athens and my son and I need to get lunch. And I'm like, we got to find a rooftop. So we look around and we just happen on this one listing that is for this, I forget what they call it. It was like the rooftop garden or something like that. I'm like, cool. That sounds great. They have this beautiful view of the Parthenon and the Acropolis of Athens, whatever. We'll go there. So we go for lunch. And it turns out this is a five-star hotel. Yes, they have this incredible restaurant. But I went downstairs and asked on our way out, like, hey, wait, do you by chance have a conference room? And the gears are starting to turn and they're like, do we have a conference room? Let me show you. And so the long story short is they take me downstairs and show me this room and it has a giant ancient wall in it. It is part of the ancient wall of Athens, like 420 BCE or something like that in this room. And they found it when they were building the hotel. So while they were excavating and digging down for the foundation of the building, they found a piece of the ancient wall of Athens. It has a Wikipedia page and everything. It's a big deal. Even people that were local Athenians who helped work on the conference, when they walked into this room, they got like emotional, like that is crazy. And so I saw this and I'm like, holy smokes, we have to do a Rails conference here. And the irony of the whole thing is the conference was actually too big to do in that room. That was a shame. We still use that room. We rented it and we used it for video production, but we actually ended up doing the conference in the same hotel We just did it up on the second floor in a much more traditional conference room. So we know at RailSAS in LA that you really took a Hollywood production approach to the conference. It was great experience for the attendees, but really you were focused on the content that you were going to get from the conference to be able to share with the world. Was that the same approach that you took for this conference? Yeah. And frankly, I think it was better. You would expect that in some ways because it's like, hey, you're doing this conference for the second time. It's interesting because I was doing this remotely. So in some ways you would expect it to be harder. And some people kind of said that, hey, are you finding it crazy to try to organize this conference from the other side of the world? And actually it was kind of the opposite. The distance and the remoteness forced me to hire people to like help with the organization and the language barrier with some of our vendors also required that. If anything, it was actually much less stressful and much better organized than the one that we did in Los Angeles. And with the video production in particular, one of the benefits that we had is that the room was a little bit bigger. So we had 70 attendees, but there was extra room available. The room in LA was very small and the room in Athens was much bigger. And so it allowed more room for the production crew they were really set up in their own kind of section of the room out of the way. Whereas if you remember in Hollywood, it was very much 
in the way. It didn't feel that same way in Athens. So I would say overall, everything about it was executed on a better level. So LA was great, but I think Athens was really much better dialed in. Not perfect, but much better. Hi everyone, it's Brian, your co-host. And to me, connecting developers and startups has been the best job in the world. When I founded Mirror Placement in 2006, I didn't know anything about recruiting other than what I had learned while growing my software agency. My developer colleagues really disliked recruiters. And since developers are just about the nicest people I know, I thought, what could recruiters be doing so badly that causes my good-natured friends to despise them so much? And it turned out a lot. Their horror stories included tales of jobs and companies that didn't exist, of recruiters not sharing the name of the company they were recruited for, and frequently, the anonymous, well-funded tech startup whose job descriptions sounded a lot like a word salad of technical buzzwords. I learned about having your resume spammed out to a dozen of companies without your consent. I heard of last minute salary and title changes after many hours of invested time and interviewing. And I have to admit, when I listened to all of these tales, I couldn't help but think it could be so much better. So I gave it a shot. And thanks to you 16 years later, it is better. You've shown that radical transparency works and that for developers and startups, pursuing long-term relationships at the expense of short-term transactions is always the right call. Together, we've made a difference at hundreds of startups and seeing careers blossom and startups change the world has been a great privilege. And I am so thankful to you for giving me this seat and to Brittany for sharing this podcast. So I just wanted to say thank you for allowing me to help accelerate your career and your startup and to know that I'm rooting for you in the next step of your journey. Thanks. How will the Athens version of the conference affect the next time you do Real SaaS in LA? In Athens, I think it was the right balance. It was still very much OP on video production, audio, all of that stuff. It was clearly a very big part of the conference, but it felt like we struck the right balance in making an experience for people who were there to attend talks live and our goal of producing content for thousands, if not tens of thousands of people on the internet. One thing I really noticed from Twitter is that when the conference was happening and the lead up to the conference, it just seemed like Europeans were just really excited about the fact that you took this really high quality conference that you hosted in California and decided to do it in Europe as well. Do you think that pattern is sustainable? Basically, any hints that you can give us in terms of like, where do you see this conference going? Just because we have seen a lot of smaller conferences pop up. So In some ways, you were like right at the beginning of that. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are. I'll say this. I think having run the conference twice now, one of the things that stood out, we talked about kind of like what was different about Athens that might affect LA in the future. I actually think even more than that, the thing that came out of it for me personally was having done the same thing twice, seeing the elements that were the same between both of them in two different places absolutely were a hundred percent dialed in and were like, yes, these things that are like structurally core to the conference are absolutely the right things to focus on. I think if there's one thing that really stood out as being a huge win for both the European event and the US event, it was location. So LA is a very visitable, a very vacation-y kind of place. Athens is the exact same. And so I would say for me, 
when these events happen again, I would like to do them in LA and in Athens. Some people have asked me like, hey, have you thought about doing one in Barcelona or have you thought about doing it in New York? And for me personally, like that's good. I hope there is an incredible rails conference or business conference in Barcelona. And I would love to see one in New York. I don't want to be the one to organize those. I think I've got two great locations and we've got kind of the logistics all sorted out. These would be pretty easy events to run again on repeat. And the only variable that I would like to adjust for is size, that there was clearly more demand for LA than we were able to accommodate. It wasn't the same in Europe. We could have sold more tickets in Europe and it would have been fine, but that's the only variable. I think we would largely produce the same event and just try to get really good at doing it again. And I do think that the neighborhoods that we were in, it wasn't just the cities, the neighborhoods that we were in were absolutely unbelievable both times. So walkable, so many restaurants, and that in and of itself created an atmosphere in which people could develop really meaningful relationships and have really memorable experiences together. If anything, that's the stuff to put on repeat. I would like to see other conferences do that as well. And I think that's what we're going to deal with. It is absolutely what the organizers at Blue Ridge Ruby did. It was the exact same thing. And I think that's what we're going to see at Rails World as well. I think in Amanda, you've got somebody who absolutely understands that vibe. She organizes this kind of stuff even before Rails World. She has experience creating experiences. And I think that's a big part of what we need from our events. And I think the people that do that are going to be the people that organize the conferences. People want to show up to the tune of selling out 750 tickets, was it? Or 650 in 45 minutes? That's what's going to get people excited. Unbelievable, right? You are no stranger to a quick sellout. I remember the story of you just like putting up the early bird tickets and just you were what, on a train or something? I was and, hanging out you know. with Colleen Schnettler. Yeah. <laughs> but I emailed Amanda after the sale and I was like, hey, congratulations. I mean, I don't think they had any idea that the demand was going to be that high. And you and I are going. So that is very exciting. You know, what she said to me, and hopefully she's okay with me sharing this, is just like, it puts a lot of pressure on her. The fact that there was that much like pent up demand is really exciting, but also it's got to be a lot of pressure for her. Just based what I've seen so far from her, she's absolutely going to mean it. I have no worries at all. And I'm very excited. But you're right too, Andrew, like Amsterdam is a destination. It's somewhere I've never been before. I can combine this into a vacation and have that happen. But like also the demand around this conference is just very exciting. We know what we're getting with this. We're getting exciting announcements. We're getting great speakers. The Rails World brand is very clear and it was very clear with Rails SaaS what we were getting as well. Yeah, 100%. I think it just highlights what we have all needed out of our events. And I think they definitely have a very clear mandate that we need flagship conferences that have the attributes of what they pitched to people. And I think they were rewarded. The market rewarded it. And I think it's really hard. I will say this for people that are feeling burned by the fact that they couldn't get in or they didn't account for the fact that this thing was going to sell out so fast or if they, heaven forbid, they had challenges actually just purchasing tickets. 
but I know a number of people that did not expect this thing to sell out so quickly and so did not get tickets because they didn't do the thing that I did, which was I stayed up until midnight. I was in Tokyo and I kind of had a sense like this could happen. I was up like hit and refresh until the general availability tickets came because the early bird ones sold out in like a minute. But it is extremely difficult. I have to say this in defense of small number of tickets that were available. It would have been extremely difficult to anticipate that there was when you look at what the attendance has been at some other events in recent history, some of the turnouts have been disappointing. Having been there myself and you see the turnout and you're like, this doesn't quite feel right. Like something's wrong here. And this doesn't represent the excitement that I'm experiencing online. Like I know a team of 40 developers and none of them wanted to go to, you know, like conference that was offered to them. And I think that highlights the fact that like something's broken here. Something's wrong. I would say that one hint that we did get that Rails World was going to do well ticket wise is that Ruby Kaigi, just incredible amount of attendees. Yes. And I think it got to the point where it sold out. And so Absolutely. I'm actually not surprised hindsight is 2020 that Rails World does so well. Yeah, it did sell out. Actually, I sent developer that works on Bullet Train to Ruby Kaigi at the last minute. And we actually had to buy a secondhand ticket because the conference itself had been sold out. Someone so, actually okay. asked me if there was going to be a ticket reseller market for Rails World. Can you imagine being in a world like that where like Ruby and Rails conferences have a ticket reseller market? Oh, I have a dirty secret. I have an extra what? ticket. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have that extra ticket, but I know I, that you're going to be It's already committed. It. <laughs> it's already committed. There it is. I kind of <laughs> knew somebody who I knew wanted to go and I was pretty sure they hadn't picked up a ticket in time. And I'm like, I'm going to just do them a huge favor and they're going to owe me one. <laughs> so I grabbed You know it. what? When the early bird tickets went on sale, I was like, hey, you know, I'm going to grab an early bird. And then obviously had no chance there. And so I messaged my friend. And I was like, well, general availability is like, would it be a good idea to get one? And I was like, I'll just do it just in case. I'll do it now. Thank God Absolutely. I did. Like, I yes. would have been so mad so right glad. now. <laughs> I'm so glad. So my whole point was just going to be because I feel like this has to be said out loud. And it's hard for people who haven't organized conferences to understand Conferences are a huge risk. They are very expensive. You need a venue to host the people that you're going to sell tickets to, and you need to have it locked in so that you don't end up in a bad situation with no venue for 650 people. So you have to commit to the venue. You got to get it locked in. You have to have a contract in place so that the rug doesn't get pulled out from under you. And how do you choose what that number is? I could have never guessed that my room for what was it like 100 people was the max that our room could take. With the equipment, it was like 100 people. I never would have anticipated that 100 people would buy tickets and not all of them sold in one day. Like I had to maneuver and figure out how to fit more people in the room and stuff like that. But every time we posted tickets, they would sell out. Had I known that ahead of time, sure, I would have booked a room for 250 people and not filled it to capacity just so everybody could attend. Everybody's just doing the best that they can. And heaven forbid... The opposite happens. And I would say this for folks that can attend, that this is a great story for our ecosystem, that mm -hmm. our event, you look at some of the other ecosystems and the events that they throw and the number of people that come. And it's great. Like, I, I love all those ecosystems. And I just love people getting into software development and launching businesses that have the possibility of really changing their circumstance. So I love all of that. 
But this is a great signal to our ecosystem that there is a Rails renaissance happening. We just needed to tweak the formula a little bit, try something new, and look, people are excited. And a lot of people that haven't been attending conferences are attending conferences again or would like to. And that's good news for all of us who want to keep working with this great tooling and this beautiful group of people for another 10, 15 years, whatever. That is the perfect note to end on, Andrew. Andrew, where can everyone follow you? Oh, I am a native of Twitter. (laughs) So (laughs) twitter.com forward slash Andrew Culver. We'll put it in the show notes. Wonderful. Andrew, it was such a joy to have you on today. Thank you so much for talking about your origin story. Loved your thoughts on Bullet Train. And of course, love to hear about Rail SaaS. And I will see you in Amsterdam in October. Yeah, yeah. I'll see you in DMs next week. (laughs) You've been listening to the Rupion Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.